Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Nourished by Nature Made is a personalized vitamin regimen customized to you. Backed by 45 years of science, they're the number one pharmacist recommended vitamin and supplement brand. Visit nourish.com to take five minute quiz to get your supplement recommendation. Nourish is here to remove the guesswork out of your vitamin regimen. The first principle is reject the diet mentality. So it takes doing a really deep dive into how has it worked for me to be on diets, to be on and off of diets and to feel horrible about myself when I can't stay on them and to finally come to that place of saying, I will never go on another diet. Because if you say, I'll give intuitive eating a try, it's kind of like making it another diet and saying, I'll give it a try. When it doesn't work, I'll find something else. So the very first step has to be a true commitment to the fact that you can never go on another diet again because they simply don't work. Hey, everybody, and welcome to RealPod. I'm Victoria Garrick, former D1 athlete and mental health and body image advocate. Every Wednesday, I'll be bringing you awesome guests, weekly inspiration, and the realest conversations around everything and anything. Now let's get real. Welcome back to Real Pod, everybody. Hope you are doing great. We are getting so close to Thanksgiving, the holidays, and all of the food, family, and chaos that comes along with these times. And as I was thinking about Thanksgiving, obviously the food, the meals, the eating, the comments from family was one of the first things I thought about. And so a few weeks ago, I was like, I need to have an episode that comes out and just really helps arm all of you guys with some tools, tips, and tricks for navigating the holidays, especially when it comes to food. That is why I am so excited about today's guest because we are going to dive into intuitive eating, the principles of that practice, as well as talk about some of the basic questions I know a lot of you have. How should I approach Thanksgiving dinner? What should I say if my aunt or grandma makes a toxic comment about my body? What do I do if I overeat? So you guys submitted questions to my Instagram and to the RealPod Instagram, which we are going to be asking our guests today, and I'm super excited. With that said, let me introduce our fabulous guest today. Her name is Elise Resch, and I am so excited, you guys, because Elise is the co-founder of the intuitive eating practice. So Elise and her partner, Evelyn Tribble, actually founded 
Intuitive Eating and co-authored the original Intuitive Eating book, which by the way, is literally a Bible. So I hope you guys go purchase and read that book. The newest edition just came out. I'm looking at it right now on my desk. It's called Intuitive Eating by Elise Rash and Evelyn Tripoli. So definitely go get that book. Elise is a nutrition therapist with over 36 years of experience. She advocates for healthy eating habits by promoting intuitive eating, which allows a person to get in touch with their true needs rather than develop harmful diet habits, which often lead to eating disorders. Elise is a certified eating disorder registered dietitian, a fellow of the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals, and a fellow of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. In this episode, Elise will share those tangible tools I mentioned for anyone looking to switch to the practice of intuitive eating, as well as address ways that we can all navigate the holidays and all the food body situations that come along with Christmas, Hanukkah, and any other festivities you all are celebrating. We are so close to jumping into this episode, but right before we do that, I actually want to shout out one of you, one of you listeners for leaving me such a kind review. When I read the reviews, you guys, it makes my heart so happy because podcasting is such a one-way experience. Like I'm talking and I'm hoping and I'm seeing you guys are listening through my computer, but I don't actually get to hear from you. So it's really special for me to see your reviews. And I wanted to shout out the Ninja 30 today who left this review. I usually don't listen to podcasts, but I love listening to RealPod. The topics are so entertaining and relevant. I learn so much from each episode and they help me grow as a person. Every time I take a break from something and I listen to this show, I come out in such a better mindset than before. Keep killing it, Victoria. Oh my gosh. Thank you, The Ninja 30. This is so sweet. I really appreciate it. If you guys have not yet left a review and you want to do it, you can head to iTunes. You can rate the podcast five stars, and then you can literally create an account. It takes five seconds and write a review. It would mean so much to me and I'm going to continue to share. So you might just be shouted out on the next episode. Okay, let's get right into this episode with Elise Resch on intuitive eating and navigating food around the holidays. Okay, Elise, thank you so much for joining me. I'm super excited for this conversation. It's timely with the holidays. I feel like it's chaos around food and what to eat and the commentary from family members and everyone is just, you know, magnified during this time. So thanks for taking an hour out of your day to join me and and have this conversation. Well, thank you for inviting me. Anytime I can talk about intuitive eating, it makes me very happy. (laughs) (laughs) I feel the same. So I'm excited about that. I want to give everyone a little bit of a background on just what led you to the work you're doing today and the start of, you know, the intuitive eating teachings. Sure. I became a dietitian 38 years ago as a second career. I was an elementary school teacher and went back to graduate school and became a dietitian. And I was training and working in a clinic for developmentally disabled kids. And I thought that was going to be my career. I was going to help these families, you know, with eating. I I ran a feeding clinic and then I just didn't get referrals for that. And I was getting referrals from doctors who wanted me to help people with their medical conditions, but it was always make them lose weight, get them to lose weight. And I was not happy about that. And yet I didn't know what else to do, but to try to help them in the way the doctors were asking, because of course, nobody really talked about or knew about diet culture way back then or why diets didn't work. So I started doing that and I hated it. It just didn't feel right in my gut. 
every time. So in graduate school, I learned how to put people on plans with the diabetic system of exchanges. And I would always say to them, this is not a diet. It's, you know, you, you can have some freedom. If you want to have a cookie, have a cookie instead of that apple, but just have one cookie, you know? So it was classic dietitian statements. It was (laughs) terrible. And, and actually I was weighing clients. I mean, I will tell you all this because I only knew what I knew then. And this is, you know, certainly evolved since then. And not to interrupt, but the growth, I think that you and Evelyn candidly share, I think is really admirable. Like with each book, you guys are calling out things that you've now changed and ways you want to communicate things better. And I think it's so important. And I really respect you for your honesty. Well, thank you so much. And I think we have to have self-compassion because I mean, our, our job in life, I think is to always be learning and growing. And if we stay stuck in some old model without really being open to the new ways, then that's, not a very good way to to work or care about people. And at the same time, to not be angry at ourselves for having the old ways, because that's all we knew. So, so yes, so I weighed clients and I had them keep journals of what they ate and all their meals. And, and actually, you know, they were losing weight because I had put them on a diet, even though I told them it wasn't a diet. But then after a while, they couldn't stay on that diet. And actually, what just occurred to me is I had one client I remember all those years ago, who couldn't stay on the diet. She couldn't even do the diet in the beginning. She would, she would tell me, oh, I'm binging. And I didn't know how to help her. I didn't know what to say. I didn't understand what I was doing. And this was not a very happy professional experience. So soon after that, uh, some of the literature started coming out with the non-diet thinking. Jane Hirschman and Carol Munter wrote a book called Overcoming Overeating way back in the 80s. And I read that and they were, um, Carol, no, Jane Hirschman is a psychologist, I believe, or, or a psychotherapist. And she was talking about the psychological aspects of deprivation. And I went, oh my God, this is it. You know, this is it. There's something psychological here going on for why this isn't working, the work that I'm doing. And as I started reading and reading a lot about psychology and being in therapy myself and understanding the human psyche, it all became clear to me. I now knew solely and all within myself why diets didn't work. And that was the point at which I decided I've got to write a book. And so I started putting an outline on my computer and I had chapter chapter names. I was going to call it, I think, the Tao of Eating, something like that. And in any case, Evelyn, my co-author, was in my office one day a week because she lived in a different city, but she came up to LA one day a week and was there. And Evelyn had written one book and one day we ran into each other in the hall and she was seeming a little unhappy. And I said, you know, Evelyn, what's wrong? And she said, I'm so frustrated. I'm writing this book with a psychologist and she doesn't know how to write. And I light bulb went off for me. There's a book about Virginia Woolf called Moments of Being. And it was like this moment of, uh, you know, the flashlight went off in my head, the light bulb, I should say. And I just immediately said, I'll write the book with you. And as we started talking to each other, she was having some of the same thoughts I was having. And so we integrated that. And we, in 1993, we started writing Intuitive Eating and it came out the first edition in 1995. Is it true that you both coined the original Intuitive Eating? Oh, absolutely. That's so 
crazy cool, Elise. Like you guys are the, you're, you wrote the Bible on intuitive eating. <laughs> well, it's so interesting. We were trying to figure out a name and I, you know, we kind of threw out the name I was thinking about and we talked about diet backlash and threw that out. And then we just came up with intuitive eating because it just felt right. And it's so interesting when I talk to young people like you who aren't in, you know, this arena, they say, well, of course, intuitive eating. I mean, that's just, it, it just is, it's out there. Like, you wrote that. Yeah. Well, that's what happened with you and I, the first time we spoke, I was like, I had this moment of, I was like, I, so for people listening without giving context, I called Elise about something to do with, you know, the intuitive eating field. I found her number online. And as we're on the phone, she says how she like founded this principle. And I like had this moment of, holy shit. I was like, it felt like I was on the phone with God. I was like, (laughs) I'm on the phone with the founder of intuitive eating. And then I had to like gather myself, but very cool stuff. And you're right. You know, I think in a very great way. It's become so mainstream, but of course, you know, it, it, then it loses touch from the original roots and the original teachings you guys had, which is why I'm so glad we're in touch and I can get all these answers from you today. Can you define intuitive eating or just explain some principles for, for any newbies? (laughs) Sure. So the most basic definition has to do with getting back in touch with that internal wisdom that we're all born with. I mean, babies just No, they're instinctual in terms of hunger and fullness. And we have lost touch with that instinct. However, instinct is not the only part of intuitive eating. Intuitive eating is actually the way we like to talk about it, um, a mind-body connection of a dynamic interplay of instinct, emotion, and thought. So yes, instinct's important, but emotion and thought are very important. And to explain that further, I like to look at the development of the brain. So back in dinosaur times, when these dinosaurs were out there just trying to survive, the only level of brain functioning they had was the instinctual part of their brain, the survival part, and it's called the reptilian brain. So here's a dinosaur out there and sees a little dinosaur running after and is hungry (laughs) and goes and grabs that dinosaur. No feelings about it because they didn't have the ability to feel. No thoughts about it. Oh, this is fattening. I shouldn't eat this. You know, it's just simply instinct to survive. So then when animals evolved into mammals, another layer of brain functioning evolved, and that was called the mammalian brain or the limbic brain. And that actually sits on top of this instinctual matrix. And that the instinctual matrix is right at the brainstem, right above that. And this is on top of that. And so they're very integrated. And that is the place or the seat of emotions and social behaviors. So if you have any pets, you know that your pets have feelings. I'm sure. You know, you go out of town, you come back, and what does your uh, cat do? Gets on the bed and pees or something, <laughs> being angry at you. But, but that level of mammals, you know, pets and other kinds of mammals, they don't have the ability to form sentences and speak to you. So what differentiates us from other animals is the neocortex or the cognitive part of the brain that is able to be analytic and speak. And, and so that's why I like to think of it as an integration of all three parts of the brain. And it's a complicated explanation, but I think it's so important because there's such a misconception about intuitive eating being the hunger fullness diet. Basically, you eat when you're hungry, you stop when you're full, and that's it. And that would be the instinctual part. But what about emotions? How do they come in and impact you know, your sense of being in tune with yourself? When this comes out, it'll be later, but we're in the middle of an election. And so I can, you know, I'm not feeling the same physical feelings that I might feel when I'm in a calm mode. So I think that that's important. And then we use the neocortex, the thinking part of the brain, 
to monitor our emotions, to, to comfort ourselves, to talk us through things and to get us to be present, to be in touch with the instincts. Yeah. And actually, have you heard, you've probably heard this joke I saw recently that said, if diet culture never existed, intuitive eating would just be called eating because Correct. it's going back to these very instinctual, what makes me feel good? What will satisfy me? And not having these crazy rules of things are off limits and things are bad for you. And a lot of that was, you know, sold and branded to us by the diet industry. And something that I thought was great that you discuss in your book, Intuitive Eating, is this idea of the food police. Um, you know, the voice inside your head that monitors these unreasonable rules diet culture has created. Could you expand a little bit on the food police, please? Sure. So let me start by saying that I believe that all babies are born with instincts. I mean, they feel hunger. They feel fullness. They're born with emotions. If you're around a baby, the baby cries, smiles. That's just innate. But they're not born with belief systems or thoughts. And those thoughts that are based on belief systems have to be put into them by their environment. So, and including, of course, language and cadence and all of those things that, that little babies learn how to do to become people. So if they're in an environment where there's a lot of uh, conversation that's based on diet culture, good and bad foods, oh, if a parent is saying, oh, I can't believe I gained all this weight, or I hate my body, or I won't get in a bathing suit, or any of those things, that language, that conversation becomes the diet police because it becomes these rules. The diet police are in charge of the rules about eating and bodies. And those are the external, that's the external diet police. They're out there, they're saying these things. And of course, if you add on to that social media today and, and pediatricians who talk about, oh, the baby's growing too fast, you should you know, give them less food or, or not even so much the baby as the older child. So there's so many influences that bring this food police into people's minds. So then you take in those external voices and they become internal food police. So you start speaking them because that's what you learned. And then I have another part to that. And then I believe they become the internalized food police. So the internal food police is you're just saying what everybody else is saying. But over time, you start believing it. You know, first you just hear it and you speak it, but then you start believing it and you have your own food police within you that criticizes and judges what you eat and what size your body is. And that's what really develops the guilt and shame surrounding food, correct? Well, of course. I mean, when you're constantly told, really, do you need that second helping? Or God, that has a lot of carbs in it or whatever. And, but you want that. You're still hungry. You want more or you, you know, carbs drive us actually. It's what our, the only thing our brains can work on. You want your carbs and you eat them. And then you feel like you've done something wrong because the food police has told you you shouldn't have it. So yes, that leads to feeling terrible about yourself and guilt and shame. This episode is sponsored by Nourish by NatureMade, the number one pharmacist recommended vitamin and supplement brand. Nourish offers a monthly subscription service that is both convenient and customizable to make sure you are getting the proper vitamin intake. Backed by 45 years of science, Nourish removes the guesswork from you trying to figure out what supplements are right for you. Nourish packages are personalized and delivered right to your door. Their convenient subscription service can be adjusted, paused, or canceled at any time. Packs are customized to your needs and are affordable. On average, it costs less than $2 a day to get your Nourish 
vitamin intake. Visit Nourish.com to take a quick five-minute assessment and receive a supplement recommendation tailored specifically for you. I took the quiz and focused all my answers on my internal health and wellness, and I'm super excited to see how this supports my mood and sleep. I'm Amanda Lippman. I run an organization called Run For Something. I wrote a book called Run For Something. And now I host this show, also called Run For Something. My mission is simple. Find people who care about solving problems and help them run for office. Every Tuesday, I'll talk with amazing and incredible candidates and elected officials who are already making a difference. They're in local offices that might seem small and not so sexy, but are actually hugely important for your day-to-day life. Fixing our broken system will take all of us and people like you. Listen in every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. There are four different voices, I believe, uh, that come along with intuitive eating. And I think this goes into explaining how it's not just hunger cues, but there's those emotional elements. And some of the voices you talk about in the book are the nutrition ally, which I love that voice. I think people assume if you're an intuitive eater, you're just eating quote unquote junk food all day long. But the truth is, I mean, through my practice, I'll get in tune with, I really would love some protein or vegetables sound great or carbs give me energy. And, you know, I think these different voices, the nutrition ally, the food anthropologist, the nurturer, the rebel ally, those are different voices you talk about. Why is it so important that they work together? Well, because they're all fighting against the food police voices, all the negative voices. And so if you've got a nutrition and nutritionist voice in you that is like the food police, you should only have this. You need to have protein. That's not going to direct you to know what you personally need and what you feel. So when you have an ally, an ally is someone that's on your side. See, the other one is not on your side. That ally is going to help you in a neutral way tune in to, is this satisfying? how is my body feeling? Huh, maybe I do feel like a salad or whatever versus you should eat a salad, you shouldn't eat the sandwich. So the nutrition ally is a very helpful, neutral voice. And the food anthropologist is very neutral. It just observes what you're doing. It, it's not something that is judging you or you know, saying anything negative. It's just observing. Oh yeah. Like I really, you know, I I was really over full and I didn't feel so comfortable and I went to bed and I didn't sleep so well. Not, oh, you ate all that food and you're bad and look, you didn't sleep well. So that food anthropologist allows you to simply just notice, just notice what's happening. I have a, a model, which I like to use and I call it the spiral of healing. And this is not video. So I will show it to you, Victoria, but it's not, uh, no one else can see it. It's basically like a spiral or a, a um, like a squiggly line. Like it looks like a portal up. up yeah, it goes upward. And I say that the momentum is always upward and onward. And when that spiral goes around itself, that little place where it doesn't go straight, but it goes around itself. That's the place where that ally voice, that anthropologist voice can say, oh, that's interesting. I ate more than I needed, or I didn't eat enough, or, you know, whatever in the past used to be condemned as being bad, you're able to just look at it. And I like to say, come from a place of curiosity, not judgment. So, oh, I'm curious. Oh, right. I was tied up all day long with meetings and and work to do, and I forgot to eat lunch. And I got home and I was in primal hunger. 
which is when your survival part of your brain is going bonkers and is saying, eat as much as you can, because all it wants you to do is that's that reptilian brain is to survive. So go eat that little dinosaur because <laughs> you're not going to make it otherwise. Right? And that voice and that sort of attitude is so important to just be kind and compassionate with yourself of, huh, okay, that didn't feel so great. I've learned next time I'm going to take another five minutes when this situation happens to, to make a decision. Yeah, but see, most people, and you're correct, and most people don't do that. They go, what's wrong with you? You know, they're yelling at themselves. Yes. How could you have done that? Why? Would, how stupid of you? Why would you go all day and not eat? Or, oh my God, you have no self-control. How could you eat so much at night? These are the old voices. These are part of diet culture. These are part of falling off of diets and feeling that doubt and shame that one feels. But this is different. Intuitive eating is all loving. The challenging thing about intuitive eating is I feel like when it's explained, it's very easy to understand concept, but putting it to work, actually taking that first next step is I think the most difficult. What do you think that step is for people? So always in every one of the intuitive eating books, the first principle. There are 10 principles. The first principle is reject the diet mentality. So it takes doing a really deep dive into how has it worked for me to be on diets, to be on and off of diets and to feel horrible about myself when I can't stay on them. And to finally come to that place of saying, I will never go on another diet. Because if you say, I'll give intuitive eating a try, it's kind of like making it another diet and saying, I'll give it a try. When it doesn't work, I'll find something else. So the very first step has to be a true commitment to the fact that you can never go on another diet again because they simply don't work. And then I jump into something that is not in order in the intuitive eating book, first, second, third, fourth editions, but is in this order in my intuitive eating workbook for teens that I wrote and another one that's coming out next year, I like to go straight to satisfaction. And my clients are so relieved when they hear in the first session, toward the end of the first session, how would you feel about getting more satisfaction in your eating? And invariably it's, well, sure, of course I want to enjoy it more. And so I ask them to just look through the lens of satisfaction as they're choosing when and how much to eat and what to eat versus having to worry so much about hunger and fullness. And I'll, I'll give you an example about how this works. I will ask a client, would you eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on your way to your favorite restaurant? And then, of course, in these days, it's a pickup food. But invariably, people say, well, of course not. And look at me like they look at me like what? And I say, well, why not? And they say, well, because I won't enjoy the meal. You know, I have to be hungry to enjoy the meal. So bingo. If you're looking through a lens of satisfaction, then you get that eating when you're comfortably hungry is going to give you more pleasure and satisfaction in your meal. If you're in primal hunger where you haven't eaten all day, it's not very satisfying when you are so hungry that you eat the whole bread basket because you just it's beyond your control. It's the brain sending you out to eat so much. And conversely, if you're not hungry at all, how much fun is that? It's just food just doesn't taste as good. And the same thing goes with fullness. So if you start to see that once you're past comfortable fullness, food is not as satisfying. You're physically not so comfortable. The food doesn't taste as good as it did in the beginning. So it helps motivate you to stop eating when you're comfortably full. And I could go through every one of the principles and show you how they're connected to. I'm sure that would take weeks. <laughs> yeah, right. To satisfaction. So, but your question was, how do you start? How do you get into it? Just think about satisfaction. 
it will be the true vehicle to get you right into intuitive eating. And a follow-up to that, which is important is people quickly have thoughts of, well, satisfaction, that would be the entire cake, the whole pizza, everything in my pantry. But if you're really listening to Elise right here and you're really focusing on satisfaction, I am pretty sure the feelings of eating an entire pizza, three cakes and ice cream is not a comfortable, satisfied feeling. (laughs) Right. And something actually really important that's connected to this is making peace with food. People say to me, oh, you can't tell me I can eat whatever I want because I'll never stop eating. Just like you're saying right now about the cake and the pizza. Here's the interesting thing. When something is forbidden, oh my goodness, it's golden and glittery and exciting and we want it so badly. And it actually applies to lots of things besides food, a new car, a great book you're reading that's that you, you know, you're excited about or a person, <laughs> you meet a person and you don't know whether you're going to be able to get close to that person. It's all exciting. Well, over time, something happens when something's completely allowed is this process of habituation sets up and habituation means the greater the stimulus, the less the response. So the more you have of something, the less exciting it is, as long as it's not forbidden. So that piece, that cake, as you're eating the cake, especially if you know you can have it tomorrow and the next day and whatever you want, eventually it's like, I don't feel like anymore, (laughs) including the pizza and all, all that. So it isn't a free for all, but it's not because there's rules put on it. It's because it's an internal process. that's both physiological and psychological in that psychologically, it's no longer forbidden. I can have it anytime I want it. So I don't need to make myself feel physically uncomfortable or keep eating what doesn't taste good. Going through that process on my own journey was so, in parts, it was funny because I'd spent years dreaming of eating this one food that was so forbidden. And then I finally gave it to myself and I was like, "Mm, it's not that good. You know, like, Oreos actually are one of those foods like Oreos kind of make me nauseous. I like an Oreo milkshake, but eating the actual cookie, I don't like that. And it used to be something I thought was such a privilege to eat. Well, see, because now you give yourself permission whenever you want to, you're actually able to have an honest dialogue with yourself, the two parts of yourself, the part that said, no, you shouldn't have it. It's not good for you. And the other part of you that says, oh, I can have it whenever I want to allows you to say, Oh, I don't even feel that good when I'm eating an Oreo. The Oreo milkshake's great. That may have to do with texture. You know, there's lots of aspects of satisfaction. And one of them obviously is taste, but another one is texture. Maybe when you're chewing that Oreo, it doesn't please you as much as when you're drinking it down in a milkshake. Who knows? Yeah, no, I agree a thousand percent. Now I want to shift gears a little bit and dive into some of these questions that were submitted around holiday eating. And Mm -hmm. I mean, like we just discussed, Obviously, I'm sure some of your answers will go back to principles and things that are important with intuitive eating. And that's fine. I think that's important. But to anyone listening, you know, I I suggest you really do take the time to think about if intuitive eating is for you, you know, look into the book, Intuitive Eating, Elise and Evelyn wrote and give this practice some time. That said, I want to dive into these questions because the holidays, I mean, you are getting you know, you get grandma comes over and looks you up and down and makes the comment about your weight. And then your mom goes, well, that's just her generation. And you like, and then <laughs> someone's commenting on what you're eating and it can just be very stressful. So I want to start with this first question, which I think this is universal. And for anyone who's even trying the practice of intuitive eating, how do we handle unsolicited comments from others about our body and our food? 
Well, that's such an important question. We do not have control of what other people are going to say. So we have to start with something I like to call preparation and rehearsal. If you're going to be in an event and you happen to know that grandma's going to make comments, it's about getting centered, doing some meditation, letting yourself know that you are perfectly wonderful just the way you are and you are not going to let grandma invade your emotional space. It doesn't mean it won't anyway, but at least you're preparing yourself, you're rehearsing. You might even have a little uh, role play going with two parts of yourself or, a, or somebody close to you. And then if you feel comfortable with it, sometimes it's just not worth saying something because you know that a person's toxic and they're going to be mean back. But if there's someone who's just not aware of the damage they're doing, being able to speak up and say, you know, actually, I would prefer if you don't make comments about my food or my body. I know you care about me, but I, that's, it's not good for me to do that. In a more subtle way, you just change the subject. You know, mm -hmm. if you don't, feel like you can actually confront the person and the person says something about your body and you say, wow, isn't that table looking beautiful? Wow, <laughs> look at how nicely it's said. Or aren't we excited about all being together now? Although there's <laughs> during COVID, we're not all so much together. But I think it's, it's several parts to this, which is recognizing that you have a right to speak up and get your needs met. Also being realistic. There are some people, as I say, that are so abusive and toxic, that speaking up just starts a whole argument. So in that case, if you know that that person's like that, to just avoid it or, oh, excuse me, I've got to go to the bathroom or, you know. And just to disengage. I mean, I think one of the situations too is like, if you go up to get seconds and someone says, you're getting seconds, or you sit down and they say, you're going to eat all that. And they kind of ask you a question and they force you into this answer part of it, you could just be like, yep, I'm really excited. It looks great. Yeah. And right. just move on. <laughs> well, I remember many thousands of years ago, I was at my niece's bat mitzvah and there was this whole table full of desserts and I looked at them all and I wanted to taste them all. So I took a piece of every one of them and put it on my plate. And as I was walking away, somebody said, oh my God, you're a nutritionist. How can you eat all of that? Or, you know, and I just said, I'm excited. Just what you're saying. I said, oh, it all looks so good. And of course I sat down and tasted which ones I like the best and enjoyed myself and didn't eat the ones I didn't like. Exactly. That's the thing too, is it's not like I'm going to, I am someone that because of my past disordered eating issues, I like to have more food than I need because I like to have the choice. Like I have a snack drawer full of stale chips that I never ended up eating, but I like to have them there because then I feel safe. <laughs> right. Well, you're still, you know, Victoria, you're still healing your past. Right. And that will go on as long as it needs to go on. You want to, that was a very smart thing you said. I want to feel safe because you didn't feel safe when you were in a place of depriving and restricting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The next question is how do you eat what you want and not what others expect you to eat? And the follow up is when people say, oh, Aunt Sally made the best stuffing. You have to eat some of it, but you don't want to eat it. Well, you, again, it's about self-respect, which is one of the principles of intuitive eating, which is respect your body, knowing that you have a right to have your needs met and you have a right to speak up and you have a right to set boundaries. So being able to say, it looks really beautiful, but I'm too full right now. Or, you know, I, I don't feel well when I eat that. Or, you know, I don't feel like it right now. But to stay strong in knowing that you have a right to say no. So this gets really deep. <laughs> I mean, let's get deep. Let's go there. Okay. I think it's important. Okay. All right. 
many people try to please other people, that their lives are very directed toward taking care of other people's needs. And I have a very strong psychological belief that when we are very young, if our physical or emotional needs aren't adequately met, we end up kind of burying them, uh, just kind of at a psychic level, knowing that it's more painful to have needs that aren't met than to not have needs at all. So we push our own needs away. And what we do is we take care of everybody else and their needs. And so it's part of psychological growth to understand that you do have a right to have needs. Maybe you push them away because it was just too painful to have them when nobody was meeting them, to learn how to get your needs met. And one of the most important needs is to be able to speak up for what you want and what you need and not worry about taking care of other people. Now, I don't mean that you can't do nice things, you know, random acts of kindness, but I'm talking about giving up your own self for someone else's needs. And if I might add, if you eat the stuffing, if the so-and-so eats the stuffing to make someone happy, who's the one that at the end of the day has to deal with guilt, shame, possibly being set back in their practices, possibly feeling suffering? You, the person that did it to please someone else and they go on with their day. So it's also that, that sense of like, I want to have a healthy relationship with food more than I want to be polite to Aunt Sally this year. Well, yeah. And it's interesting what you're saying, because if someone is going to eat what Aunt Sally wants them to eat, they're in that early stage of still still being tied into diet culture. And so that feeling guilty that you just mentioned is a part of that. As you evolve out of diet culture and truly embrace intuitive eating, the guilt is not going to be there. and you also don't want to feel physically ill or have your taste buds like, a, you know, assaulted by something that doesn't taste good to you just because somebody else is pushing you. So it's kind of a sign of your, you know, your evolution into intuitive eating. If you cannot feel guilt, if you do take a bite just because you can't, <laughs> Aunt Sally's sticking it in your mouth. You know, you don't, you don't shame about. Another thing too is I imagine people envision this relationship with food where they're never thinking about food food's not a thing and it's just never a factor in their life. And yeah, in some ways, intuitive eating does have me have days where I'm not thinking about food all the time, but it is okay to prioritize, actively think ahead about these conversations. And that doesn't mean you're, you're obsessed with food and your food has a hold on you. It just means you are actively preparing to protect a healthy relationship. Oh, right. And I think it's actually quite sad when people never think about food. They don't get that pleasure and joy of anticipating a wonderful meal or a, a new restaurant. It's a, it's a matter of balance, isn't it? It's not, it's, you're not obsessing, you're not beating yourself up, you're not worrying, but you're thinking about it. And what you just said was actually, you know, very similar to my talking about preparation and rehearsal, getting yourself prepared psychologically to deal with an uncomfortable situation. Yeah, I love that. The next question is, what should your mindset be around the holidays? And I bet your gut answer is not what it is currently, because people (laughs) like to look at it as a hall pass. And then there's all this restriction before and after. Well, there's so many aspects of it. So the first one, obviously, is if you have been on a diet, you're tied up in diet culture, you haven't let yourself eat what you want to eat. Yes. Then it's the hall pass, as you're saying, which never is satisfying because you're just you know, eating often so much more than your body really needs and, and eating it in fear of not being able to eat it, you know, future deprivation. So the first step, of course, is being in that set of, I can eat whatever I want to eat when I want to. 
Now, the next step is, yeah, but I'm not always going to get that Thanksgiving food because I can't bake pies the way, you know, Aunt Sally. (laughs) Aunt Sally, this girl's a legend. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So it's about having that gratitude that you get the opportunity to taste all these wonderful foods that maybe you don't know how to make or you don't have an opportunity to make and to be kind and compassionate towards yourself that, yeah, you might end up eating more than you typically do in a day because it's delicious and special. And, you know, you have this opportunity to have more satisfaction and pleasure. And so not to set yourself up with, well, I'm only going to have a half a plate of this so that I can have a half of this dessert and any kind of setup in the beginning of telling yourself what to do is food police. It's internal internalized food police telling you how much you can have, which of course only makes you feel the the deprivation about the other half that you're not going to have. So it's giving yourself full permission to eat as much as you want and committing to staying present and tasting it and, and, you know, actually enjoying it and seeing whether you like it or not. Well, that was my follow-up question is, is it possible to mindfully eat Thanksgiving dinner when there's so much commotion and conversation happening? Yes. It is, there is. I, I think that doing a little meditation beforehand, getting yourself centered and present and recognizing that this is such a wonderful opportunity to enjoy food and to keep taking a time out. So if somebody is talking to you, put your fork down, have the conversation. It's very hard to notice if you're getting full or if the food is tasting as good as it did when you started, if you're just engaged in a very deep conversation. So put the fork down for a moment. These meals go on forever. It's okay. And recognizing when there might be some emotional distress because of people like Aunt Sally and other people at the meal. So setting up coping mechanisms in advance, meaning if you're in a situation at that table where you're starting to feel revved up inside and upset and feeling like you're being judged, to excuse yourself for a moment, get up, walk away. I mean, nobody bothers you if you say you have to go and pee, you know, so you just get up and you walk away, text a friend, has set up something in advance, maybe where you can get some support or just walk outside for a moment and take a deep breath. Two important factors of Thanksgiving dinner, but also eating every single day is our hunger cues and then are feeling full. So if we focus on just the hunger cues, I know this can be difficult for some people. Some even say like they don't have hunger cues from so much disordered eating. What are your thoughts on finding our true hunger cues and the best way to evaluate how much food we are able to eat? Well, let's start with people who have had lots of disordered eating or serious eating disorders for a long time and are out of touch. They're not aligned with their own signals or in tune with them. I would say just understand the science of eating and the and blood sugar. Our bodies typically need food about every three to four hours. I mean, it's because our blood sugar starts to, blood sugar, what is it? It's glucose that is there and available for energy for our bodies and our brains. So our, our bloodstream can hold enough blood sugar, which is glucose for maybe three to four hours. So if you know, even though you're not feeling the hunger signals yet, but you know theoretically that your body's going to need food about every three or four hours, just set it up that way. Have a breakfast. I think breakfast is the most important meal for setting up hunger and fullness signals. Because if you don't eat breakfast and your brain isn't getting the energy, then you supply your body with your own glycogen stores and you break down your muscle for amino acids and change that into glucose. And basically it just takes away hunger. 
people say, oh, I don't want to eat something early in the morning because then I'm never going to feel hunger. Well, true. You're not going to because you're supplying your body with food from your body from the inside. So it takes away, I call it self-cannibalization but because <laughs> you're breaking down your own body. But in any case, starting the day with you know, a breakfast. It doesn't have to be the minute you get up. Most people aren't even that hungry when they first get up. But within a couple hours of getting up, having a, a breakfast that's delicious and satisfying and kind of balanced. And then if you're not feeling hungry three to four hours later, tell yourself you do need to have some food. It doesn't take that long for you to actually get the accurate hunger and fullness signals when the survival part of your brain starts to sense and trust that you're going to be fed on a regular basis. And following those hunger cues up with the feeling of full, a fullness and being done eating, how do we honor our fullness and detect that? I mean, I, I feel like I know the answer, but I'm asking for those who don't know. Okay. So what I mentioned earlier about taking a time out, I would say, first of all, slow down. And even before slowing down, commit to being present, you know, just be there taste your food, eat it slowly, allow, it does that old adage about it takes 20 minutes for your stomach to send the message to your brain that you're full is actually true. So if you're gobbling food down within five minutes, you're not going to be able to detect fullness. But if you slow down, if it's a larger meal and you take a time out in the middle and just kind of be for a bit, check in, am I still hungry? Some people say, well, I take two bites, I'm not hungry anymore. Should I stop then? No, no. Those few bites take away that hunger, but it doesn't mean you've had enough food. So you need to continue to eat. And then there's a point at which when you actually do feel like your stomach is comfortably full before it gets overfull, there's something, I wrote a paper about this a long time ago. It's called the sadness of saying enough. And what it means is, is that that point at which you are comfortably full, there could be a feeling of sadness that comes up that you need to stop eating because you can continue if you want to, but you don't want to feel uncomfortably full. You don't want to feel sick after the meal. So that sadness arises and you have to sit for a moment with it and say, yeah, I do feel sad. And I get to eat five times, six times a day. So I'll be okay. And you walk away and do another activity. And it's, I call it emotion light because it doesn't stay with you for very long. But that is, I think, a key point to why a lot of people won't stop eating because they don't want to feel that sadness. It's pretty universal if you think about it. I can't express how important it is to allow yourself to be able to eat whatever you want to eat for everything you've said today to be applicable, you know? And it's just so scary for people to want to buy into the practice, but being an intuitive eater myself, and I'm sure you and, and your whole career, like you want to scream it from the mountaintops that there's a way to approach food in your body where you don't have to hate yourself for it every single day. Do you think this practice is for everyone? Or do you think some people who do have whatever their portion is or their macro, like, is it possible to have a relationship with food that is somewhat attached to diet culture, but you're not really, because I think a lot of guys kind of like, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, you know, I think there's some people that don't have an emotional attachment to food. And those are the ones I said, I felt sad for earlier. They don't even care. They eat for fuel. So yeah, there are some people that have never been in diet culture who aren't judging their body size, aren't trying to shrink their bodies. And they just, yeah, an athlete who feels like I just need to eat whatever I need to eat to perform best. But that's not the majority of people. 
most of us do have some emotional attachment to food. And I think if you are thinking about some external rule, you are never going to be able to truly be free. It has to be an attachment to the wisdom that's within your body and listening to yourself. So no, I don't think that that that's really possible. And lastly, do you have any pieces of, you know, you think your most powerful advice or the most epiphany triggering thing you've ever heard that you want to share with our listeners today? Yes. I believe that diet culture promotes weight stigma, weight bias, and I believe it is as big an oppression as other oppressions in the world. And we are all trying so hard to fight oppression in every possible way. But most people don't recognize that being judged for their bodies or judging others for their bodies is a very deep and traumatic and abusive form of oppression. So my work of course, is to help people have more satisfaction in their eating and feel free and have the freedom to trust their bodies. But my work is bigger than that. It's about changing the world and helping uh, people look at the damage that is done by judging people by the size or shape of their bodies and their, you know, their appearance. So that would be the profound thing I I do want to say. Yeah, no. And I think that's really powerful. And I definitely agree with everything you're saying. I actually feel like we're on the front end, like this conversation, for example, was on the front end of, I think, a big diet culture rebellion that's brewing. I feel like by the time, maybe five, 10 years from now, I mean, I don't even think the same way that now we're seeing all inclusive, we're, we're starting to see more brands include more body types. Like this is just starting to be a thing. I feel like we're going to get to a point, which is a good thing, where any sort of promoting diet culture or calories or calling it skinny pop or the Oreo thin without the guilt. Like, I think that's going to be completely blacklisted. What do you think? Well, I hope so. I'm working, I'm, I'm working toward it. And I find that when I am working with people who are, who have had disordered eating, just eating disorders, and they're really having a problem with body image and they buy into intuitive eating, but they're still not liking their bodies. When I bring up the social justice piece of this and looking at one's values, it starts to resonate and they're able to make more peace with their own bodies and with other, you know, and how they observe other people's bodies and wanting to fight diet culture. So that body image piece is the the problem because people are not happy with themselves. So they're always trying to look for something to fix themselves or change themselves. And when they realize the damage that is done by holding on to, that belief system, I I have seen it change people's minds, you know, so dramatically. Well, it's because they realize that there's actually nothing wrong with them. And society has been trying to convince them there is so that they could make money. And then, like you said, there's this really empowering piece of it. It's like, Hey, if I can get this one thing right in my life, I'm actually a part of this greater movement against something in society. That's not right. Correct. That's exactly what I'm saying. So sometimes helping people just get away from themselves and looking at the bigger picture, it works both ways then. Then when they want to promote this change in society, it actually helps heal themselves too. Elise, thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. I feel like we covered so many bases and I'm grateful that you shared this all today, especially for those people who hopefully feel a bit more confident as we approach Thanksgiving and Christmas and, and all the food that comes along with it, the food and presents. Yes. Yay. Right. For both. (laughs) Thank you, Victoria. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Real Pod. If you want to keep up with Elise Resch and all the projects she has coming up, you can follow her on Instagram at Elise Resch, as well as check out her website, EliseResch.com. And super exciting news, she has an intuitive eating journal coming out. It's the principles for nourishing a healthy relationship with food. So make sure you are following her so that you can purchase that intuitive eating journal the second it comes out. I know I definitely am. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you guys want to keep up and find behind the scenes information, you can follow us on Instagram at RealPod. And you can also follow me at Victoria Garrett. Last but not least, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. Subscribe. So every single Wednesday, you get the episodes downloaded automatically. And don't forget to rate and review if you are enjoying the show and you want to leave a kind comment. It would truly mean the world. I hope you guys have an amazing rest of your week. You're going to absolutely dominate this holiday time. I believe in you. You can do this. And as always, keep it real.